Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. Funny that, isn't it? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am your host. I am a stand-up comedian from Edinburgh that you haven't heard of, but that's all right. That's allowed. I do a thing here in the city. It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I do it. And the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast, that is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this podcast or you listen to the series, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about the, the Battle of Bannockburn, the famous and unlikely victory that saved a nation. Spoiler alert there, we actually won this one, right? But that's why it's so celebrated. It's a victory against England that we actually won. Do you know what I mean? Making the overall score, Scotland won England a million. It is potentially the most important moment from Scottish history. If Robert the Bruce had not won the Battle of Bannockburn, it's likely that Scotland as a nation wouldn't even exist. Robert Burns, he wrote a, a very famous song about the Battle of Bannockburn. It's called Scots We Hey. It goes a little bit like this. It goes, Scots We Hey, we Wallace bled. Scots, him Bruce has often laid. Welcome to your gory bed or to victory. That's the first time I've ever sang on the podcast. It's probably never going to happen again. So, you know, archive that one. But uh, yeah, just by the way, I should point out because I know that people are morons, right? I want to make this very clear. Robert Burns wasn't actually at the Battle of Bannockburn, all right? He wasn't involved in the battle. This wasn't something that he was singing while everyone was getting on with it, like, you know, cracking each other's skulls. And he was born 450 years after the Battle of Bannockburn. And he probably just wrote that song because he was, you know, trying to get laid, as he always was. That was his modus operandi, Robert Burns. Do you know what I mean? Like, he would just come up with a load of incomprehensible nonsense in an attempt to get women to sleep with him. He was like Russell Brand, basically, you know? It's rumoured, actually, that before Scotland's game against England in 2017, Gordon Strachan, he actually sang Scots Way Hay to the squad, and uh, Stuart Armstrong obviously chose a gory bed over victory because if he had just played the football anywhere else than where he played it, we wouldn't have to cling on to this victory that occurred against England over 700 years ago. We would have a brand new, fresh delicious victory against the English to enjoy. So thank you for that, Stuart Armstrong. Listen, if this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, all right? If you like your Scottish history mixed in with a lot of, like, jobby jokes and Tory bashing, then you're going to enjoy it. You're going to have fun. If this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, might I suggest you go back to episode one. I don't really talk about anything topical or anything like that. Um, they all go in chronological order, the episodes, and they give a good bit of kind of background for the podcast that follows. So go check it out. Listen to it from the beginning. Right, so without further ado, folks, here you go. Here is your podcast all about the uh, the run-up to and the battle of Bannockburn. I do hope that you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! Edward II is often remembered as being the man who lost Scotland. He's criticised for lacking the single-minded determination and the ferociousness of his father, Edward I. He's a bit like it's a bit like when, when Alex Ferguson's son, Darren Ferguson, decided that he would become a manager as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, he was just... 
a little shit, a tad inept, an incompetent leader living in his father's considerable shadow. But at least Edward II was, you know, managing at the highest level and not Gammon FC or whoever it is Alex Ferguson's kid is managing. But when it comes to Edward II, this reputation, it's it's unkind and it's probably an unworthy legacy. Although obviously some blame does have to be attributed to the guy. Do you know what I mean? Like anyone who manages to lose to Scotland has inevitably bollocked up in some way or another. Edward, he was the fourth born son, and as such, he was never really expected to become king. He only got the gig he only got the gig because, you know, there was no one else left. He was kinda of like Boris Johnson in that respect. He was schooled in warfare, however, and his bravery, it was unquestioned. His problem was that he was in love with one of his noblemen, a guy by the name of Piers Gaveston. Now, Edward II, he inherited the throne at the age of 23 after the death of Edward in 1307. And a year later, he was married to the French king, Philippe the Fair's daughter, Isabella. And the marriage, it was uh, a complete nightmare. Uh, Edward, he was... He was trapped in a loveless marriage with a foreign woman who secretly hated him. He was just like Donald Trump, basically. And obviously the problem was his suppressed sexuality. And since there was no Holly Willoughby types in the 14th century, you know, who could drum up sympathy for Edward II and communicate his feelings to the nation, it was his love affair with Piers Gaveston that provoked bitter baronial resentment. And it made them difficult, nigh and impossible even, to gather support for wars or to... to get armies together, or to govern his kingdom. Edward's barons, they actually murdered Piers Gaveston in 1312, and his wife Isabella, she took a lover and launched a successful rebellion against him in 1327. Here was a king, living in his dad's shadow and struggling with his sexuality. It really is hard not to feel sorry for Edward II, but he was still trying to brutally suppress a nation, and it is important to remember that just because Edward II was gay, it doesn't mean that he wasn't still a complete and utter arsehole who was trying desperately to suppress Scottish independence. You know what I mean? He was the 14th century's Ruth Davidson, basically. That's what I'm saying. Aside from his domestic and personal issues, Edward II's biggest problem was the same problem that John Balliol, William Wallace and Robert the Bruce had all faced before him. He was up against a formidable opponent. Robert the Bruce, he had gone into hiding in the winter of 1306-1307 at his lowest ebb. He went into his cave as Gandalf the Grey. And when he re-emerged again in the spring of 1307, he did so as Gandalf the White, taking out bodies with his all-white staff like the Trump administration. And on the 10th of May 1307, Robert the Bruce won a small but a key battle at the Battle of Loudon Hill. And momentum and popular support had now begun to swing in his direction. The timing of Edward I's death, two months later, couldn't have come at a better time for him. It coincided with the Bruce resurgence. Now, Edward, he had died at the head of his army en route to, to putting down the Bruce rebellion. And the waiting English army, it continued into Scotland under the leadership of Edward II, but they didn't really do all that much. They, all that much, sorry. They just bounced about southern Scotland doing fuck all, really. They were more like firemen than soldiers, to be honest with you. And while in Scotland, Edward II, he received homage from some Scottish barons in Dumfries, and he sent 800 men out with bloodhounds to search the southwest of Scotland to try and find 
the Bruce and presumably some foxes as well. Now, they couldn't find Robert Bruce, and I sincerely hope they didn't find any foxes either. And by the end of August 1307, Edward II, he had had enough and he had returned to London. He wouldn't return to Scotland for three years, and it would be an absence that Robert the Bruce would take full advantage of. As soon as Edward left, Robert the Bruce, he went back to doing what he did best, engaging in guerrilla warfare, carrying out a series of brilliant, brilliant military strikes and picking up more and more followers as he travelled. He, he moved like an aggressive Jesus, basically. And his first move was to descend upon Galloway and avenge the death of his brothers Alexander and Thomas at the hands of the common-supporting MacDougalls, who had captured and executed the pair at Loch Ryan in the spring of 1307. The head of the MacDougalls, a terrified John MacDougall, who had himself defeated Bruce at the Battle of Dal Rye in 1306, he asked for and received a truce from his stronghold at Dunstaffenage Castle. So Robert the Bruce, he left his brother Edward in Galloway to secure the gains that they had made there and to keep the English occupied while he continued north, moving through Argyle, the West Highlands and up the Great Glen Way, taking off Inverlochy, Inverness, Ucker and Nairn castles like an Instagram influencer. And as he travelled up through the West Highlands, he was supported by Angus Og, the powerful Lord of Islay, who provided the Bruce with a fleet of galleys, their priority to destroy the common power bases in the north of Scotland. Now, the Bruce, he didn't have a standing army, and so he relied on treachery of the garrisons and intimidation and popular support to win over castles. And when he won a castle, he would then have it destroyed so that no one could retake the castle and then use it against them. It's a very similar scorched earth policy that Donald Trump will likely employ when they eventually boot him out of the White House. He'll just have it burnt down while he stands outside getting a photo taken holding a Bible, presumably. The Earl of Ross, uh, a key ally of the commons in the north, and the man who had handed Bruce's wife, daughter and sister over to Edward in the autumn of 1306, he was also frightened into a six-month truce. Uh, the Bruce, he was making an awful lot of truces with his supposed enemies. It's, it's, it reads a lot like the Better Together campaign, to be honest with you. And Bruce, he continued this rabies tour to the north of Scotland and he was on his way to Elgin when momentum stopped suddenly when he fell ill and had to withdraw into a defensive, a defensive position at Sleach near Huntley. The Bruce, he was suffering from a mysterious illness. He was on death's door, unable to move, eat or drink. Things had very quickly gone from rabies tour to holiday cruise liner. And when John Common, the Earl of Buchan, arrived with a sizeable force on Christmas Day 1307, he had Robert the Bruce surrounded, and it looked like a futile and disappointing Bruce, uh, end for the Bruce after all that he had been through. But, inexplicably, Common's men were unwilling to attack, presumably because they were being made to work on Christmas Day. Do you know what I mean? They didn't want to be out fighting strangers when they should be at home fighting with their own families. You know, it's Christmas. So the attack was abandoned, and when Buchan returned with reinforcements a week later, after the Bruce had self-isolated and been tested, he was nowhere to be found. Surprise, surprise, the test and trace app that Buchan was given didn't work. A still unwell Robert Bruce destroyed Buchan's castle at Balvini in March 1308 and laid waste to Duffus Castle near Elgin and Taradale Castle on the Black Isle. On the 22nd of May 1308, Bruce faced off against the Earl of Buchan in Aberdeenshire, somewhere between Inverurie and Old Meldrum. The Bruce, he still couldn't walk, he had to be lifted onto his horse and held in place by two men, but apparently just the sight of Robert Bruce on his horse was enough to make Buchan's men scattered. They were as terrified of him 
as Boris Johnson is of Piers Morgan. Bracken's forces fled the battlefield and Bracken himself escaped to safety in England. And so Robert the Bruce set about laying waste to all of the Bracken lands, culminating with the taking of Aberdeen in July 1308. And after Aberdeen had been taken, the only remaining common support in the north of Scotland was John MacDougall at Dunstaffenage Castle. The Commons, a once powerful force in Scotland now, obsolete, out of touch, left with only one member and decimated by a man who supported Scottish independence. The Commons were basically the Scottish Labour Party of its time, you know. And MacDougall, he had, a tr- he had agreed a truce with Robert Bruce the previous summer, but that truce was now over and there was old scores to settle. Robert the Bruce, he wanted revenge after the mauling that MacDougall had handed out to him at Dal Rai in 1306. Bruce's route to MacDougall would take him through Tinderham and Dalmally to Loch Awe and he would be forced to use the narrow pass of Brander on the steep side of Ben Cruchen, one of the highest mountains in Scotland. It was here where John MacDougall planned an ambush for Robert the Bruce's men. He had his men set set up on the mountainside, and when Robert the Bruce passed below them, they would roll boulders on top of them and then rush down and attack them like an episode of the Flintstones. Robert the Bruce, however, he anticipated this attack, and he sent James Douglas ahead, who set up with squadrons of archers, even higher up the mountainside. And when Bruce's forces passed through the Pass of Brander, the ambushers were themselves ambushed by a volley of arrows from James Douglas' forces above them. Vicious hand-to-hand fighting followed, but Robert the Bruce came out victorious. John MacDougall, he managed to escape to England, and after a short siege, Dunstaffenage Castle surrendered. The MacDougall power base had now been broken and old scores settled. Bruce had avenged his reverse at Methven Wood at the hands of Pembroke at the Battle of Loudoun and now he had avenged his reverse at Dal Rai at the hands of John MacDougall. Bruce didn't stop to bask in his success. He immediately headed north to assert the control that he had won there and to deal with the Earl of Ross whose six-month respite was coming to an end. But the Bruce, he didn't wreak merciless vengeance on the man who had handed his family over to the English. On the... 31st of October 1308 in Nairn, Robert the Bruce, he accepted the formal submission of Ross. And it culminated a remarkable year for Robert the Bruce. He had come back from a life-threatening illness to achieve unprecedented success and become a champion. Um, although a few years later, it would come out that Robert the Bruce was doping the entire time. So, uh, you know, most of these victories were tainted. But the Bruce, he had made superb use of guerrilla tactics, keeping his opponents guessing about where he was going to strike next, never staying dormant, constantly moving, preventing his enemies from gathering their forces against him. And apart from the key fortresses of Stirling, Perth and Dundee castles, Robert the Bruce, he controlled the kingdom north of the Fourth Clyde Line. Now, the remnants of the common-led government, they still claimed to represent the community of the realm, but it was the same way that the, like, Secretary for State for Scotland claims to exert some sort of control over what actually happens in Scotland. Their power wasn't real, and it certainly wasn't respected. I mean, the Secretary for State for Scotland is some guy called Alistair Jack. Do you know who that is? Me neither. Just kind of bog-standard borders Tory, probably. Now, Robert the Bruce, he uh, he could justifiably now call himself the King of Scotland. And as such, in the autumn of 1308, he began to administer and govern the kingdom that he had won. In March 1309, Robert the Bruce, he held his first parliament at St Andrews. And it was at that parliament where a, a letter from the French King, Philippe IV, was discussed. It was a letter in which Philippe was asking for support from a, for a crusade. Now, Philippe's request was politely declined, but it was significant. Because in his letter, Philippe referred to Robert Bruce 
as King of Scots. This was the first time that a foreign power had done so. And it was particularly significant coming from the King of France because it was in France where the actual King of Scotland, John Balliol, was still living in exile. Eventually, Edward II was able to raise an expedition to head north in September 1310, but he wasn't able to raise enough troops as disenfranchised nobles were still not happy with him. And the expedition, it turned into nothing more than a kind of pointless bounce about the south of Scotland, a bit like a championship football club on a pre-season tour. And so Edward's army, they moved between places that he knew that they would be safe and wouldn't be challenged. It's a bit like Boris Johnson visiting in a distillery in Speyside or the fucking Baxter's factory. His expedition was merely a tour of English garrisons in the south of Scotland. Edward, he wintered in Berwick and he started the campaign again in 1311 with a continued lack of success. The Bruce, he was just impossible to get at, retreating to the hills and occasionally launching one of his surprise guerrilla attacks to frustrate the English forces. And by July 1311, Edward II, he was fed up and he returned to England once again, having not cut up with the Bruce or made any sort of gains in Scotland. As soon as Edward left... Robert the Bruce set about the south of Scotland, launching grades into the Lothians and going full Tony Soprano, extorting tribute in exchange for inverted commas truces. It's a bit like, you know, like when you park your car and some wee guy will go, oh, I'll look after it for a pound. And you're like, you got to give the kid a pound, otherwise he's going to tan your car, basically, you know. And so the Bruce, he financed his military campaigns by launching a series of raids into the north of England. Now, the goal here was not to conquer or to kill. He was after protection money and cattle, hustling cattle for extortion, food, and, of course, to sustain the support that he had acquired from the northeast of Scotland. Now, the inference that I'm making here, right, is that the people from that part of the country engage in bestiality. Right, which, uh, which is, if you're wondering, it's just a fancy word for sheep shagging. Do you know what I mean? Like, the people of Aberdeen have been interfering with animals long before the people of Wuhan. Let's just put it that way. Now, these guerrilla tactics, they were very successful. Bruce was gaining in wealth and he was, beginning, he was gaining in power. And he began to pick off English garrisons in the south of Scotland one by one. Bruce's forces did not have the equipment necessary for sieges. And so they relied on audacious raids and daring tactics to win back castles. So, for example, in January 1313 at Perth, Bruce's men swam the moat and then used specially made rope ladders to scale over the castle walls after apparently mistaking Perth Castle for Takeshi's Castle. And at Roxburgh, they disguised themselves as cattle to edge ever closer to the castle. Although, listen, if you can lose a castle to some guys dressed as Angus the Bull, then you're probably a pretty shite defender. Do you know what I mean? Like, even Phil Jones could stop an attack from a pantomime horse, for Christ's sake. At Linlithgow, a squad of commandos hid in a haywain cart, which was used as a Trojan horse, and once inside, they opened up the gates and Bruce's men came flooding in. But my favourite audacious castle siege came in Edinburgh in March 1314. Robert the Bruce, he put his nephew and one of his most trusted generals, Sir Thomas Randolph, in charge of retaking the jewel in the crown, Edinburgh Castle. Now, the castle sits on a huge rocky crag. It's an extinct volcano that erupted 340 million years ago. And Edinburgh Castle is is a near impregnable castle, right? Which, admittedly, that might be what you expect from a castle. But listen, that is rare in Scotland. Do you know what I mean? Like, most of our castles get impregnated at 16. But Edinburgh Castle's greatest defence was definitely, by far, its £18 entrance fee. And so Thomas Randolph, he went into the town and he offered a reward for anyone who could successfully scale the castle rock face. And a wee guy came forward, a guy by the name of Willie Francis, who showed Thomas Randolph's men a secret route, a secret route, sorry, up the north side of the castle face, of the, the castle rock. 
Now, Randolph and the majority of his men, they attacked the east gate of the castle, the main entrance, while the commando squad, led by Willie Francis, scaled up the rock face and again, using specially made ladders, threw their ladders over the top of the castle walls, climbed up the ladders and overrun the English garrison. And it remains the only way in which you'll ever get a local to actually visit Edinburgh Castle. In a parliament in Dundee in November 1313, Robert the Bruce was confident enough to declare that anyone who did not, inverted commas, come within his peace within a year would face forfeiture of their lands. Edward, he tried to hearten his supporters by saying that he would take an army north in 1314, which just encouraged Robert Bruce to pick off even more strongholds and even greater rate than he was doing before. And after the successful siege of Edinburgh Castle, the only English fortress that remained in Scotland was Stirling Castle. Now, Stirling Castle is considered even more impenetrable than Edinburgh Castle and is easily supplied by the River Forth. So Robert the Bruce, he set up a blockade of the castle and he put his brother Edward in charge of the siege. Edward, Bruce's younger, kind of more impetuous brother, he was known to prefer the excitement of the battlefield to the drawn-out monotony of a siege. So... When the English constable of Stirling Castle, Sir Philip Mowbray, offered a deal that would avoid a siege and ensure a battle, Edward agreed. Now, the deal was simple. If an English army had not relieved the castle by Midsummer's Day, 24th of June, 1314, then Mowbray would surrender the castle to the Scots. The deal essentially created a, a do-or-die battle for the possession of Scotland. In order to preserve his credibility, Edward II had no choice but to accept the challenge and to send an army to relieve the castle. But for Robert the Bruce, this was terrible news. He had been successful using guerrilla tactics, and here he was now being forced to face the full might of the English army in an open pitch battle, and the English had never been defeated in an open pitch battle. So despite home advantage, the Bruce knew he'd be heavily outnumbered with almost zero chance of victory. It must be what like a Hamilton academical fan feels like. So King Robert Bruce's date with destiny had been set. He knew where the battle would take place, and he knew when it would take place. And for Edward II, well, there would be no Russian linesman to help him out this time. Bannockburn, just like Waterloo 500 years later, would be an everything-on-the-line battle. So basically what I'm saying is ABBA really do owe us a song about Bannockburn. Edward II had made something like peace with his barons after the murder of Piers Gaveston in 1312, and because he was on better terms with his nobles, it meant that this time, when he summoned an army to fight the Scots, they all turned up. When his army amassed at Berwick on the 10th of June 1314, it was a formidable force of at least 20,000 men and 2,000 heavy cavalry, the largest army to ever invade Scotland. Bruce, he was also able to amass his largest army, although at the very most it was 6,000 men, and at least half of these were, inverted comma, small folk, untrained volunteers with homemade weapons who had flocked to the Bruce cause. They were labourers, farmers, burgesses, craftsmen. And like Wallace, Bruce, he would rely on his squadrons of massed pikemen known as Shultrans. Now, the important difference between Bruce and Wallace was he taught the Shultrans to be effective in attack and defence. It was known as the Andy Robertson method. This ability to attack, it would be key for the Shultrans so they wouldn't become stationary, a stationary target like they had been at Falkirk. Eight hours a day in preparation of the battle, Robert the Bruce would train his army of volunteers over and over and over again, drilling them. And by the time of the battle, they were primed and ready to use violent and excessive force, like an American police force, you know? And the Bruce, he 
did still have his band of hardened, experienced guerrilla warriors who had become accustomed to defeating the English. And although he only had around 500 light cavalry commanded by Sir George Keith compared to the English 2,000 heavy cavalry, confidence amongst Robert the Bruce's army was high. The English army emerged from the Tor Wood and onto the old Roman road. It was a straight road that led straight to the castle, despite this fact Edward's sat-nav still took him in the complete wrong direction. Now, the road was the easiest route to the castle, but it was blocked by Bruce's men. He had set up booby traps, anti-cavalry pits, camouflage spikes either side of the road, and, most bafflingly of all, a one-way system that remains in Stirling to this day. It remains nigh on impossible to get anywhere near the bloody castle. So when the English vanguard emerged from the Torwood on the 23rd of June 1314, they spotted the Scots and they went charging at them immediately, not waiting for reinforcements. One of the heavily armoured knights was a young knight by the name of Henry de Boon, and he caught sight of Robert the Bruce addressing his troops. And seeing his chance for glory, he shouted, Boon, Boon, shake, shake de Boon, and he started charging towards Robert the Bruce. Now the Bruce, he was just on a, a wee grey pony armed only with a small hand axe. And when de Boon came charging towards him, he shouted, Come ahead, you fucking ball bag! And he stood up in his stirrups and with one swing of his axe, he split Henry de Boon's skull in two. Bruce's men went absolutely wild with delight and surged forward to meet the rest of the cavalry who were caught in the booby traps. Now, while the first engagements were occurring on the battlefield, another detachment from the English vanguard attempted to reach the castle, bypassing the Roman road and riding through bogland over streams and ditches to try and reach the castle and attempt to end the battle. If they could make it to the castle, they would relieve the castle and the battle would be stopped. They were spotted in the nick of time by the Earl of Murray, who marched a sheltering of spearmen down to intercept them. The English knights were thrown from their horses and suffered heavy casualties before being forced to retreat. It had been a morale-boosting series of events for the Scots, who were now spoiling for a fight. The English army crossed the Bannockburn through the night and spent an uncomfortable night on the Bannockburn as the Scots unleashed their greatest weapon, the Midges. So the English, they were on high alert for a surprise attack from the Scots, but it was an attack that never came. In fact, Robert the Bruce still had designs on retreating and not engaging the English army at all. He was very wary and, despite the day's heroics, reluctant to risk everything in battle the following morning. But Bruce's army were energised and ready to fight. A council of Bruce's lieutenants was called and they convinced him of the mood of his army and encouraged Robert Bruce to make his stand the following morning, the 24th of June, 1314. The first engagements of the 24th of June came at daybreak, around half past three in the morning, and they occurred at the Stirling taxi rank over an argument over whose taxi it was. Robert the Bruce, he addressed his troops. For eight years or more, I have struggled with much labour for my right to the kingdom and for honourable liberty. I have lost brothers, friends and kinsmen. Your own kinsmen have been made captive and bishops and priests locked in prison. Our country's nobility has poured forth its blood in war. These barons you see before you, clad in armour, are bent upon destroying us and obliterating our kingdom, nay, our whole nation. They do not believe that we can resist. Now these are the words that are attributed to the Bruce by Bernard de Linton, the abbot of Arbroath and the chancellor of Scotland who carried the Monimusk reliquary um, at Bannockburn. It's an 8th century casket that contained the relics of St Columba, which sounds like the shittest packed lunch ever, doesn't it? 
The Monimusk uh, reliquary is the ultimate symbol of Scottish independence and has pride of place in the National Museum of Scotland. And after Bruce's speech, the Shilterns, led by Edward Bruce, attacked while Douglas and Murray attacked the immobile English knights with another squadron of Shilterns. Do you know what it would have looked like? It would have looked like the pole vaulters attacking the equestrian centre at the Olympic Games. Now, the knights, the English knights, they were relieved by the English archers, but Robert the Bruce had anticipated this, and so he sent his cavalry, led by Sir Robert Knight, to attack the English archers. Then, Robert the Bruce and Angus Og attacked with brigades of Highlanders and Islanders, employing the terrifying Highland charge, scattering the English ranks. With the battle in the balance, the turning point came when, quite unexpectedly, the small folk joined the battle, charging like 2,000 Markish Rashfords at a Tory government. To the exhausted English army, it looked like a fresh Scottish army arriving, and they fled the field. When the tide of battle turned, the English army's attention turned to getting Edward II off of the battlefield into safety. Edward, he had to be dragged from the battlefield. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, like in those days, you had leaders who would fight alongside their men and had to be physically removed from the battlefield, and now you've got a guy who hides in fridges. Edward, he was ridden to Stirling Castle where Sir Philip Mowbray sensibly refused him entry, not just because he was wearing trainers, but also because as part of the agreement Mowbray had reached with Edward Bruce, he would now have to surrender the castle to the Scots and if Edward was in the castle, he would have to be handed over as part of that surrender. Edward, he managed to make a, a narrow escape and made it to a waiting ship in Dunbar. Now, the inability to snatch the king was the only blip in a brilliant victory for the Scots, a victory that saved Scotland's existence. The most important victory, the most important battle, maybe even the most important moment in Scottish history. And you know what's funny? None of the chroniclers seem to mention how badly we needed England, how Scotland was too small to go alone, what type of currency we would use in the future you know strange very very strange isn't it so that brings us to the end of the podcast folks thank you so so much for listening i do hope you enjoyed the episode if this is the first um episode of the montebank history of scotland podcast you've listened to then go go back and check out some of the other ones it's the same shite do you know what i mean like if you like this one you'll like the rest as well uh, you can contribute to the series by buying me a wee kind of pat on the back, cup of coffee, or the equivalent of at buymeacoffee.com. I am on there at Montebank History of Scotland. Or if you prefer, you become a, a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. I'm on there as well, at Montebank History of Scotland. What I try to do is each week I try to raise enough money through those accounts so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. Um, so it can be like a frontline worker, an NHS staff worker, a patient parent, or just a, a thoroughly sound person. You can nominate someone uh, by leaving me a comment on those accounts on, on Patreon or on Buy Me A Coffee, or give me a follow on social media. It's just at Montebank Tours. You can leave me a comment or a DM or send me an email, and I just basically pick one at random. And what I try and do is I try and match the whiskey with what we've been talking about on the podcast. So today we were talking about Bannockburn, so I'm going to choose the, the delicious Lowland Dram of Deanston which is a, a distillery that's located eight miles north of, of Stirling. It's a delicious, smooth, lovely, mellow dram. And um, they used to do this really cool thing where on their 12-year-old, they had, uh, so like on the actual label, they, they had the story of the, the wars of Scottish independence. So like they, they told the story of like John Bailey or William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. Basically, I think it went from 1296 to 1314. Really, really cool thing to do. And so... and. Um, 
by far and away the most suitable whiskey to choose when talking about Bannockburn. I don't think they do it anymore. I don't think it's on their their twelve year old bottles anymore. Um, so if you if you're holding on to like a, a Wars of Independence bottle, then you know, it might be worth a wee bit, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so as usual, when it gets on to the end of these podcasts and I start talking about whiskey, I'm rambling a wee bit, right? I do apologise. Listen, thank you so, so much for listening, folks. Uh, give me a wee follow on social media. Check out some of the other episodes and uh, I hope to see you all next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.